Okay, here we go, here we go. Thanks for being patient. Uh, things get, have more of a feel of being back into full swing here. So, uh, 16 after Pentecost would be 15 after Trinity, which would be the earthly good Sunday. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. Well, that's not so bad then. If he'll take care of that, you can just have the balance, which would all be good. First Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him. He cares about you. Grant us, O Lord, not to mind earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even though now we dwell among things that pass away, teach us to cling to those things that abide forever. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, uh, let's see. I got just a couple of things. Uh, Dan Kovic has got number two, the, the lesson number two that we sort of did last week, if you want that. Um, Vicar, go ahead and pass out number three, then if you will. Uh, we're trying to take attendance so we know who's here. Let me see here. Now, it looks like these are identical, so I'm going to send them in opposite directions, and if you're not on there, write your name on the bottom. We'll put you on next time, okay? And uh, the secretaries did put pencils on there, but I lost them between my office and here somehow. I don't know how that happens. Um, under the, you know, we're always thinking about things, and if you come to this Bible study, then you get to sort of participate in the change. Um, a couple of things I'm just thinking about, especially if young Gainig should actually appear here. First, for, just for you who plan ahead, we were, we were aiming at uh, the feast day of St. Andrew as an ordination day. Now, just so you know what's happening, um, several of us signed call papers this week for Josh Gainig. Those call papers go to the district president, who is now Dan Gilbert of the Northern Illinois District. He then forwards those papers to the seminary with Josh's name on them. So it's a designated call. That's what we voted for. The call day is the 27th of October. There's only two guys coming out. He's one of them. And uh, then he, but he can't officially start here until after the term is over. That's November 17th and all his grades are in. So we were aiming at the feast day of St. Andrew, which was the last day of November. It was a Thursday evening. Uh, but, you know what? The joy group is leaving that day for four days away. So we wouldn't wanna, uh, we wouldn't wanna uh, be planning something big when so many faithful people are gone. And they're gone Thursday through that Sunday. So what we're trying to do, and this is the tentative plan, I'll just see your mark in your calendars, is work at an ordination on the last Sunday of the church year, which I think would be November 26th, which also happens to be their anniversary and Abby's birthday. So this is particularly helpful for a man who can't, you know, men can't remember anything. So if you, just, if you can just remember one day every year, you'll know that everything happens on that day. See, so this is particularly fortuitous, all right? So uh, if you're thinking ahead, you know, sort of think to yourself, last Sunday of the church here, probably in the evening, you know, six or seven o'clock, we'll have to figure that out. Uh, seven is a slightly more genteel time, but it does get you in bed just a little bit later, so you might think about that. You know, when, when Josh arrives, you know, and then occasionally when things change, then people say, well, where in the world did that come from? And then I, I always want to say, well, I thought I talked to you about that or mentioned that or... You know, that's been on the burner for a while. I think you can, be, you can rest assured that nothing capricious ever happens in this congregation. There's nothing that doesn't come without a whole lot of thought. 
So I'm going to just tick off a few things that are on the radar screen, which are probably not going forward just because there's not enough uh, juice right now. We just kind of, everybody is running full out. But when we get a little bit more help, um, you know, we might be thinking about uh, a couple of, just a couple of things. Uh, at Josh's ordination, there'll likely be the introduction of the chausable. A chausable is, uh, a, is a garment that the celebrant wears, long history in the church, which matches the color and goes over top of the alb. So uh, you buy a set of them that match the color of the year. So if, the, if I were wearing a chausable today, the chausable would be green. So probably, um, prob there, there are some chausables on order, and when they come, likely he'll be vested in a chausable among the other things that happens at his ordination, and then those chausables will come into use. It marks the celebrant, uh, who is always the big deal in a Sunday morning. If you notice, if you've ever tried to figure out you know, uh, wh why people walk the way they walk, the celebrant is always the last one. Uh, so this, even when we leave, when we come in, process in, the celebrant is last, not the preacher, if, the, if they're different, the celebrant. The highest level thing is the Holy Supper. And when we leave, if you've ever paid attention to what, how, how we leave, we leave in two ways. If we're not going to shake hands, we all leave together. If we are going to shake hands, the celebrant always leaves last. So the chausable uh, sort of marks the celebrant. There are a couple of other things I'm actually thinking about, and uh, today was a good example of why those things might work. Round about the first of the church, you know the new hymnal is coming out. There's a new hymnal for the Missouri Synod. We're going to get the new hymnal, that's a certainty. But we're trying to be clever about how we do that, given the fact that we're moving you know, next door and how things work. Uh, the interesting thing about the new hymnal is you can get it on, you can get it on software. Uh, so probably you know, we will get it on software and be using it from maybe from the beginning of the new church year. We've got to kind of figure that out. With that, we may clean up a couple of things that, you know, for whatever reason we did them in the past, probably we, we might have learned things and can do them better. One would be, We'll probably, uh, I, gotta, I gotta slow down here, there's a lot of things cooking, all right? Matins is a daily service. Matins is a Monday through Saturday service. We occasionally celebrate it on Sunday. But really in Matins, uh, you read the lessons through and you traditionally don't stand for the gospel. We did that as sort of a Sunday holdover. One of the things we might tweak a little bit is not to stand for the gospel uh, during a Matins service twice a month. So I'm just sort of putting that out there. And the reason is that it's a daily service, it's a scripture reading service, it's a listening and quiet meditation. We sort of shorten those things, but they should be. Normally what you do is you read a text and there's a pause for reflection. You read a text, there's a pause for reflection. You read a text, there's a pause for reflection. And then the great text from Hebrews is read in many and various ways. Uh, our, Lord, our Lord has spoken to us through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. That sort of marks you that you came through the old, through the psalm, to the Old Testament, to the epistle, to Christ himself, and you're meant to reflect on those things. So one of the things we, we likely will do, and we'll sort of have to retrain a little bit, is to, is to stay seated during matins for the gospel. Um, the next thing, and I'm, I just, you know, you can always, you know, I'm telling you this, of course, because if, uh, you know, if I'm irritating you at some point, you need to, to get to me. But another thing that we do here, which is, um, you know, sort of local custom, but we might do better not to do it, is we dismiss every table. Uh, 
through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep and preserve you steadfast in true faith to life everlasting. If you, amen. We do that with each table. Now, really, if you look in the hymnal, what's supposed to happen is um, this table would come, and then they sort of get the body and blood, and then the pastor just moves away, and they go back into the congregation on their own. Then this table gets it, and they move back, and then this table is moved up. And then at the end, there is the general um, uh, the, the very body and very blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ keep and preserve you steadfast. And we may in fact do that. It would um, simplify things and let them go a bit more smoothly, even to the point where, and now I've got to kind of think this through, if you're the person right here and have received the body and blood, you know, when you're done, you can sort of stand up and move to your seat, even if the person in the back hasn't received it yet. This is a very common practice. In fact, the practice that we have is the less common practice in the church. Um, you Valpo grads are used to this. I can't, I don't know what's done at River Forest. I haven't been there for a Holy Supper for a while. But just, just sort of thinking about that. So I'm just sort of putting this out here. If this really rankles you, you should sort of, you know, if you're anti-chausable or if this bugs you, you know, you should probably get to me. Another thing that we've um, talked about is a service of healing and prayer for those who are sick. And I've been working on this for about a year and talked to a lot of people who are very smart, whom I respect a lot, and I haven't been dissuaded from it, even though people have, uh, in large measure, um, reservations about that. Primarily when people have reservations about this, the reason they have reservations is that they, are, they fear that the pastor will promise more than he can deliver. For example, somebody's sick, uh, you have a service, you give them the body and blood of Christ, you anoint them and bless them specific to their illness, and then they die. And then people say, well, that didn't work. Well, you know, the thing is, is um, the Lord does what he does, that we beg for a particular thing in a very specific sort of way uh, doesn't override what the Lord will do. And the longer you live and the more mature you become in the faith, the more you realize that you have whatever the Lord gives you. That's what you have. And if the Lord gives it, it's good. That was Luther's great, great sort of, you know, confidence. Whatever the Lord, God is good by nature. He's merciful toward, toward me by nature. And whatever he gives me uh, is good. What, what comes my way is good or works to my good. Um, it's very interesting. I'm always, I'm always struck by the fact that when we start thinking about these things, it always encourages me that then sort of things follow along. So I get the postcard this week for the Valpo Liturgical Conference, which is always the week after Easter. And guess what the topic is? The restoration of the healing arts in the church. And I get the Christian Century this week, and on the cover is um, stuff about, and this is another idea we've been working on for about a year, is a different form of service. There it is on the cover of the Christian Century. So I'm always encouraged by, um, regularly, if there's a criticism of St. John, um, sometimes the criticism is that we're behind the curve, the reality is that we're so far ahead of the curve, people haven't caught up yet. Um, you know, I just, I give you, the, I give you the empirical data. We've been talking about this. I mean, I've been telling you for years what kids really want is icons, incense, prayer, quiet, and candles. Get what, guess what? The emergence church appeared. Okay, now they don't have it right because they're, they're, they're without, they're largely, uh, I'm going to say this very gently, they're largely um, nonchalant about doctrine. But the reality is, is, you know, what they don't want is praise songs. What they do want is deep mystery. And if you just look around, that is the pulse of uh, theological conversation for the last five years, so much that it's on the cover of the Christian Century this week. 
So um, you know, part of it is, is you know, sometimes you pay being too far behind the curve, sometimes you pay being too, too far ahead of the curve. What you're always trying to do is find the sweet spot of where things lie. The reason I'm telling you these things and things like, and there'll be other things I think coming along like this, I'm trying to observe my own dictum that we need to do fewer things well. But I also, one of the things I was surprised at the Family Life Project, one of the criticisms I got, which I thought was unfair, well, there were very, there were a lot of criticisms, and I mean criticism in a positive way, that were very helpful, that helped shape that. One of the, one of the remarks that wasn't helpful, though, was, um, you know, you sort of cook this up over a weekend, and you don't just do what you can cook up over a weekend. You know, I was, th I've been thinking about this for years, and I have 20 projects, you know, in folders in my desk waiting for the proper time to emerge. Now, part of the problem is, is when you get a little bit shorthanded, you can sort of put things off and they never emerge. So in my own mind, what I have to try to do is remember that, that we need to do fewer things well because you're all extraordinarily busy. But in doing those things well, part of what we need to do is look at what care of the soul actually means when care of the soul becomes acts of mercy and words of witness, and then say, in a practical sense, what is it that people want? And when people all around us, um, my great nervous, one thing, we, we ought to be delivering if it's within you know, our quiver to deliver. I didn't actually, that sounded very strange. <laughs> within our quiver to, uh, to, to, give, to give out. You know, so, uh, you know, for example, my concern with a healing service would not be that it wouldn't be successful. My, my concern would be that it would be too successful and we'd have trouble managing it. For example, I don't know about the other kind of thing. We don't really have the space uh, that normally such a thing takes, and so you have to kind of overcome, you know, our space limitations uh, and how that would work. We don't really have a, an easily manageable atmosphere. So we just have to think about whether or not we could pull that off. The reason I'm telling you this stuff, you know, partly is just I, I am interested in your, in your feedback, one. Um, two is, and I've got about four other things written down here that I, that I want to rethink. Uh, for example, I've, I've, more and more people are being anointed uh, at their baptism, and I think the new rite uh, in the new hymnal calls for that. I've got to double check that. Jonathan, are you in the room? He's with us in spirit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's tearing around somewhere. I saw him going out the door, and we were just chatting, but I can't remember. Vicar, do you know? Are you here? Does the new rite have baptism? Does it have oil in the baptism? No, that's all right. I think that, it, I think that the new rite does have oil. And then see part of the thing then, and more and more people, right now we give people oil, we anoint them as we did with the, with the Nelson baby. We anointed that child. Um, we Christed it, chrismed it, anointed it. Uh, and then what happens is, is that usually then, um, that is an anointing which you receive at particular times in your life. For example, if you anoint the sick, you see that goes with the healing service, and when you, we commend you at the commendation of the dying, so the first thing you smell in your life is the name of Jesus being put on you, and the last thing you smell as you die is the name of Jesus being put on you, and then in between, at particular times, when you might think that Jesus has abandoned you, you're desperately ill. What you smell is Jesus. And then also, uh, and this would, be a this would be a run and a stretch for us, but I, because, because of the, the number of people that come to the rail, it wouldn't be bad. You know, we, we had a long conversation about what it means to bless kids at the rail, and who does the blessing, and is it done with the sign of the cross, and is it done with the name of Jesus, and what precisely is said. We, we talked about that with people, you know, smart guys all around the world for a year before we started doing it. 
the question that would be, should that be, should that sort of be done with, uh, uh, with oil or not? There's, there's a question about that. You sort of put that out there. So partly the reason I tell you these things is so you can, you know, you can sort of just crunch it a little bit. Part of it is so things, you don't get surprised, things just don't appear. Part of it is um, so you don't think that things are capricious. Part of it is for you to help me with your own experiences. Um, when I was in, this summer, I was at, uh, at Duke University and uh, went to a very full service, I must have had 1,400 people, in a very Gothic cathedral. And after that, um, there was at the side a service of uh, Holy Supper and uh, in a side chapel, Holy Supper and anointing for the sick. And I couldn't get in. You know, I was probably three quarters of the way back and by the time I got there, the place was jammed. What does that tell you? What does it mean? You know, when we have 20 people we're praying for, what does that mean? When you bring your friends' names, what does that mean? So it's, this is a live conversation about live practice, and sort of there's not a lot of churches around that do it, and the ones that do it don't always do it in the most theological, theologically apropos way. So the question is, if we're going to do such things, how does that work out? So there's a range of things to be rethinking as, as things sort of you know, come around. And then part of that is, is as, we, as we move to a new space, we have a whole bunch of thinking to do. And the, the real challenge is, I think I might have mentioned to you last week, that on the 21st, staff, governing board, and elders are all getting together for a full day, an all-day Saturday. So thank your governing board and elders, and, and even your staff members who come and put in, a, they're going to put in a full, a full day. And the real challenge for us is, at once to engage all the possibilities of what might happen, and yet for a big group of a couple thousand people, knowing how busy you are and how what's most important <coughs> is to um, try to get you on the same page. So even if you don't necessarily agree, you might nod along and say, well, I, you know, nobody ever gets their way uh, in, in a group of 2,000, but I'm part of the group and this is my home, my church, my community. Uh, the body of Christ, and so I'm in on that. So partly what we have to do is engage all possibilities, but then uh, present those under a very few rubrics that focus our attention as we go forward. And that's a challenging uh, but lively thing that lies before us. So I guess I can sum up everything I've said in this. This is um, a period of tremendous change, and I began with that a couple of weeks ago. But on the other hand, uh, the change isn't unmanaged or it's not capricious. And so what we need to do is have this sort of pulsing sense that we're always um, toward the next best thing, the best of what's old and then the next best thing, but all in a thoughtful conversation. Um, and occasionally we have to say, and we didn't get that right, so we won't do that anymore. And sometimes, and we have to be free actually to take some chances and then to fail and then to regroup and then to say that's okay. And that, I think, if you ask yourself about your own life, about your own family, you know, about your own business, I think that's probably the way you would recognize that as sort of a, uh, as a sort of noble paradigm for those things. It should also be a noble paradigm for, for the life of, of, of Christians together in a church. So as I get closer to things, I'll try to fire up a flare. I don't want to surprise you. On the other hand, um, uh, it's not always just the same old thing. That makes sense? Everybody okay? Um, also on the radar screen, you know, just so you know, is a complete re redesign of the high school program and the confirmation program. But we don't quite know what that looks like. Uh, and it'll depend how, how people come through, uh, you know, and that depends on Marcus then coming along a little bit later. Um, 
think that's it. All right, that was just a flare going up. All right, everybody okay? Questions, just short questions about any of that? All right, keep swinging. Um, you should have in front of you, uh, let's, I think, I'm not sure that I did number two thoroughly enough, but I think it was done thoroughly enough that perhaps I can just sort of scooch on to three. If you have two in front of you, here's, here's what I actually would beg you to do. And maybe now this is, this is a very, um, what I just spoke about was a concrete example of what number one says on, so on, on page that says number two at the top, point number one there is, if you could just suspend for a moment what you think about the church. I was thinking again this morning about how new people often do better in a church situation than older people do. Newer, newer people, I'm not talking about age, I'm talking about chronology within a particular church environment. Newer people often do better, newer Christians often do better, because they don't have as many expectations. Now on the other hand, I, I know there's another side to this, which is I, I do fret, um, I do fret when, for example, a very faithful member of the joy group dies. I do fret about those things. And I actually, I think to myself sometimes, where will I ever find another person like that? You know, John Marty's a great example. Uh, he wasn't exactly a joy grouper, but uh, he was an elder. And you say to yourself, you know, gee whiz, you know, when will the next John Marty appear? So in, in one sense, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing. You really, you really love people who've been long and faithful in the church. You know, on the other hand, sometimes newer people who come without expectations and might be just a bit more malleable may be able to uh, be a bit more nimble in community. And I guess partly what I'm appealing to you for is if you could just for a while, maybe at least for the weeks that we do this, if you could just suspend your notions or some of your notions at least about what the church is, or if you could at least critique your notions of what the church is to make sure that what you think the church is is the church that Jesus describes and desires as it's revealed to us in Holy Scripture. I just want to, just want to put that to you. If you could just, I think it would be a valuable exercise for all of us. We get, we get locked into what we think we ought to be, but every once in a while, you need a check to say, is this what Jesus wants from us? Is this what Jesus expects from us? I, uh, you know, I, I'm so in some pleased about the capital campaign in, many, in so many ways. You know, people have worked hard, and you know, we're sort of finishing up, and you get the bookmark today, and we're over $2 million. And you know, already we're starting to talk about you know, the next thing and the next capital campaign. And, and, you know, it's fun to do that because you learn about yourself and you learn about people and you learn about the church, you learn about what Jesus wants. On the other hand, I also always, I always can't help thinking to myself, um, if people tithe, tithe if, if everybody in this room, if everybody in this congregation tithed 10% on the gross, we would never talk about money again in the church or the school. Tuition would be my favorite number, zero. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, my optimum tuition for the school is zero. Okay, that's what I would hope tuition would be. However, zero exists in an environment where everybody does what Jesus bids them, which is 10% on the gross or more. So you know what? If you all aren't doing 10% on the gross, you can't complain about school tuition because we've got a kink in the hose and we've got to figure it out. In the same way, you know, we want to be really well-staffed. We have all sorts of conversations now about Josh and Marcus coming along, how we're going to work, how the pieces move, who's on the staff, where does that go? You know, money always becomes part of that conversation, as does health insurance and all the rest. 
I would never have to have another conversation in the church about money, nor would you. Or it would be better to say, if everybody was at 10% on the gross, then we wouldn't talk about money again because we knew we would know the boundaries in which we were to live. You see? See, that's a, so that's, an, that's a practical point of where Jesus tells us exactly what he expects of us, and then we don't do it, and then we get all kinked up, and we spend, you know, I bet I spend 40% of my life in the church talking about money issues of all that I do. That's ridiculous. Imagine what the church could be like if I could have that 40% of my time back, and you could too. Imagine all the places where money irritates people in a congregation. Imagine if every, every, every last money irritation went away in the church, what, what kind of place we would be. Just imagine to yourself, okay? And now ask yourself, isn't that the kind of church that Jesus bids? And isn't that then a place where we're all, we're all twisted up about what the church is meant to be? It's a very practical example of how things should work, okay? So I'm asking you as we go through this, just to spend what you believe about the church, or you know, take everything out of the box, and then as you put them back in, ask yourself, what's going to happen? What sort of church Jesus wants? What I've tried to do then is suggest to you that I think I can gather everything under four headings, which are these, that Christ is present, okay, and we need to talk about that. Sometimes he's present in the stories he tells, He's also present sometimes in the water, and with the proper uh, delivery, he is present at the altar. So Christ is present. He's not far away somewhere. He's very near. Remember we had an Old Testament reading that said a few weeks ago, the difference between your God and every other God is that your God is so near. That's a striking Old Testament reading. First, that Christ is present. Second, that Christ embodies God. Now, for people who are creedal Christians, that is not a particularly shocking notion. Um, we at least understand it in the way of Christmas, that Jesus is the body of God, or that the second person of the Trinity, the divine Trinity, as we say technically, takes a human nature, so he has both a divine nature and a human nature in one person. He's both God and human in one. But I'm going to press you on this, because what I'm going to suggest to you is that in Christ, let me put it as clearly as I can, Christ embodies every attribute of the Holy Trinity. Okay. Now, I don't think that I'm going to get any pushback at that point from you, and I think you probably would nod along and say, yes, if Christ is true God, if he is the same stuff of the Father and the Spirit, if he is, as we say in the Nicene Creed, you know, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one substance with the Father. So we say at least five times in a row, we say he's the same stuff, the same ousia, as the Father, that he has the divine attributes. Okay, fair enough. So in the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is a full participant. And what I've given you here is a, you know, a lot of technical words that try to tell you that. There's always this 
mutual interpenetration called perichoresis, which means <coughs> it means the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in each other the way your soul is in your body. Now, any of you can explain to me how your soul is in your body? God bless you. You know, you, how, how, is, how is your soul, you know, in the tip of your little finger, in your tongue, and in your left earlobe, and in your little toe on your left foot all at once? I mean, we are, we are, it's an anima, you know, we are animals in this sense. That is, we are spirited beings, we are alive. What is it that makes us alive in particular as human beings? What makes us alive in particular of human beings is that we have a soul. And beyond that, we have a divine nature, or I'm sorry, a divine image. Let me speak clearly here. That we were created in the divine image. So we were animated, and that spirit animates our flesh, but it animates in a way that so, it's, so, it's, it's so all put together that it's inexplicable, and yet we know the difference between what it is to be dead and what it is to be alive. And when people drop dead, we say, no spirit there anymore. Okay? So what we say is that all that happens in the Trinity, all that the Trinity is, is found in the Son. Okay, that's a good Christmas and Easter confession. Fair enough. Most of you, uh, I'm, I'm thinking you're fine. But beyond that, and here's where I think it's going to pull a little bit at the next two points. Not that Christ is present. If you're Lutheran, if you're sacramental, you confess that. Not that Christ embodies God, the mystery of the Trinity. I think what's going to pull is the next two points, which is if the church really is what Jesus says it is, this is my body. He says that about the church, not just about the bread at the altar. He says the church is his body. That means Christ embodies us, which in some sense means that those attributes which belong to the Holy Trinity are delivered to this congregation as a community and are meant to be active. And if they're not active, it means we are frustrating Christ who is embodied in this community. Okay? So what I'm suggesting to you is that when we look around at each other, you know, this is where Luther's dictum about we're all little Christ to each other, that that means that in the most literal sense, that your behavior and mine in our life together is dictated by the divine life in the mystery of the Holy Trinity revealed in Christ. So whatever is happening up there is happening down here. That's what the church is meant to be. Now, it's 11 already, but I'll just tell you, if you just think about, in fact, I'll ask you, you tell me what the Holy Trinity is like. Just tell me. If you think about the attributes of the Holy Trinity, what do you think about? What are the most practical attributes? Can you tell me? Go, John. Intense love, intense love for one another. Right, which is precisely where we're going. The first one, as you can see from the sheet, um, is that divine love embodied. That would be the first marker. Anybody else want to have a go? When you think about the Holy Trinity, what do you think about? Think very practically. There are some things that are not going to help us, like omniscience. 
You know, God knows everything. I think pretty much this whole Bible study has been a confession so far that I don't know everything. Okay? Yes. Divine unity. Okay? What else? How about divine cooperation? For example, when the Son goes to the cross, the Father sends him, the Son says, okay, and the Holy Spirit weeps. Yeah? So here's your assignment for ne toward next time. Go home and think about what, the, what divine life in the Trinity means. Consider how that divine life is embodied in Jesus. Okay, you, it's very abstract to say, what's the divine life like? Well, it certainly is cooperative. It is certainly marked by love. It is certainly marked by cooperation. It is certainly marked by unity. But that's very abstract until you say, Christ embodies God. Now suddenly you can see Christ wander around. You, you look at the gospel for today. What is, what is, you know, what is the church? What is God? But acts of mercy and words of witness, what else is it? You know, he puts it in a very practical sort of way. How is that divine love expressed? How is that divine cooperation expressed? How is divine unity expressed? What I want to suggest to you is you need to reread all the Bible studies you know with the expectation that you will find in them the definition of our life together, okay? And that any time that we step outside that, we're being unfaithful, right? And any time um, we remain inside it, we're sure to be blessed. Anyway, that's where we're going, and what I hope to do is read through a couple of stories about not just Christ's mercy, but for example, his hospitality. You know, what does hospitality look like in the Holy Trinity, right? Start to think about what the stories look like and ask yourself how that reflects on God and on us. That's where we're going, okay? So next week, and I know you've heard it a hundred times before, but the John 8 story is where we're going to start. Because uh, here's the clue. Divine love manifests itself in mercy. Divine love is not abstract. It manifests itself in mercy, and mercy is when that love is applied to you direct, specifically, not directly specifically. Okay? All right, that's enough for today. I'll see you next week. Thanks for being patient. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.